All right, Jude, look with me, please. Um, in Jude, and really just one verse tonight, verse 3 is where we're going to be probably settling down for a little bit of time here. Uh, there is much to be understood here uh, in, in verse 3 of Jude so that we have a greater understanding as to even the thesis and importance of the purpose as to why Jude has written this and how, of course, we surely can relate to this today, and, and we must. So look with me in Jude verse 3, please. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Last week, just as a brief review, and I do mean brief, actually I, I was studying this out, and, I, and in the reviews I normally attempt to deal with this in a manner that brings back to mind what we have dealt with thus far, and we're going to do that, but I, this is going to be very brief for sake of, of time and entering into verse 3 and not, not wasting any time to get into that passage. So as a quick review, last week we examined Jude's explanation and as well as exhortation within this third verse of his epistle. And as I pointed out on last week, Jude states his thesis in this third verse when writing, when he said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So this is his thesis statement, that you should earnestly contend for the faith. And last week we considered three truths from this verse as we were beginning to look into this. And that was first Jude's greeting to the reader when he says beloved, of course. And as in the case of John's epistles, the term beloved is translated from the Greek word agapitos, which Jude used to address the reader as a fellow recipient of God's love. Agapitos being very, of course, similar to that of agape when dealing with God's love towards us and for us uh, as mankind. And here we see that it's taken from that very term. And so beloved is, is a form of that word agape. And then second, Jude's explanation to the reader regarding his desire to write the epistle. He says, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. And so the use of the term common refers to that which is shared. When he says common, it doesn't just mean something that is, is uh, commonplace in the sense of, of it's not important, but rather he's saying it in the sense that it is a shared uh, a, a, a shared salvation, and so it's common in that respect. It's, it's the same salvation received by one, received by all, who are redeemed. And again, we pointed out to you last week, I, I attempted to point out that the importance of this is recognizing that uh, there's not one person who's more so redeemed than another of those who are redeemed. And it's not like somebody has more favor with God than another. No, we are all heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if we have received of Christ this redemption that God has provided us. And so we need to recognize that and understand the common here is that of being shared and common to all those who are in the faith. And so we see in, in this, this term common, it's believed by the language that, that Jude used in the statement, he desired to write to the reader concerning the realities, the benefits, and the depths and joy of this salvation in which they were all partakers. When he says, I gave all diligence, he was very intent and purposeful, and his desire was to write unto them concerning this common salvation. And last week I spent some time showing you some of Paul's writings concerning the depths and riches of Christ, which Paul identified as part of the salvation. Then third, Jude's exhortation to the reader in verse 3 goes on to say it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So despite Jude's great desire to write concerning the unsearchable riches of God shared in this common salvation, 
Jude felt it overwhelmingly necessary to turn the attention of the reader to the tremendous necessity, to the responsibility and necessity to hold true the faith that they had been given and taught. So tonight we will begin to examine in reality the crux of this epistle. Jude wrote due to his awareness of the present danger for believers regarding the faith. And Jude's exhortation is not only one of extreme importance, but also one of tremendous urgency. As we discovered last week, Jude emphasized this urgency when he said, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. Again, he's saying, I wanted to write unto you about the depths and riches. I believe what Jude is saying here concerning, as Paul did, the depths and riches of this salvation in Jesus. To explain unto you all the beauty and the glory of this redemption, he says, however it was needful, the urgency is present for me to write unto you concerning the responsibility and necessity for you to earnestly contend for the faith. So while the urgency and significance of Jude's exhortation is that the foundation of this letter The implication of the exhortation is something which demands our attention, it demands our focus, and it demands our commitment. There's so much to consider within this third verse of Jude, as I've mentioned, and we're only going to begin this this evening to look into this. The implication included within Jude's statement, earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. The implications are foundational to the purpose of, for which Jude has written this epistle. And these implications include, first, believers are to personally engage the faith earnestly. That's implied by this term, earnestly. Believers, second, are to personally defend the faith, and that's implied by the term contend. And then third, believers are to personally acknowledge the exclusivity of the faith, which is implied by once delivered unto the saints. And so these three statements are inseparably linked or connected one to another. So what are we to glean from Jude's exhortation in Jude when he says, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Well, first we begin by this, uh, recognizing this first truth that we must personally, believers must personally engage the faith. Now the use of the adverb earnestly in the text helps us to better understand the meaning of the verb contend, which follows. And the verb contend means to struggle for it, as well as associated with the word agon, which is implying that of agony or struggle. And the implication signified in the use of the phrase earnestly contend, because this is a verb and an adverb, an adverb and a verb, earnestly adverb contend verb. The reality is it is a verb phrase in the sense of the Greek in, the, in that this is one word, and it, it's translated in this fashion for us But the earnestly is to contend, and the to contend is to struggle for. And so this phrase is one of personal engagement. It's personal involvement and personal struggle. You know, when something goes awry from our perspective, especially when it's something in which we possess personal interest or have been personally invested, we will often say to the one affected, don't take it personally. However, when one is personally invested and interested in a particular thing, it is difficult for it to not become personal. And when it comes to the faith of which Jude speaks, we are to take it personally. Now, this is not to say that we are to take persecution or hatred for Christ or the gospel personally, but we are to take the exhortation to earnestly contend for the faith in a very personal manner. 
While there are those today who profess they are willing to fight, even to the point of becoming belligerent or obstinate, claiming to do so in the name of Jesus or in the guise or under the guise of religion, many of the same who would make such a claim fail to commit themselves diligently to understand the truths for which they claim they are willing to fight. For much too long, the church has become passive concerning engaging the faith. When questions are asked, for, for too long, those within the church have dodged answering the questions due to their own passivity, their own laziness, and or their own ignorance. And what's more is the, the use of the word faith is given as an answer rather than explaining, defending, and propagating the faith upon which they claim to stand. In other words, people say, well, how do you know I just believe? That's not an answer. And so the reality is when Jude says contend for the faith, he doesn't say use faith as a scapegoat or use the word faith as a scapegoat to dodge the questions or as as an out or as a cop-out or as an excuse for not answering a question. When someone says to you, when they ask a question to you concerning the faith, concerning the gospel, concerning the truths of God's word, for you to simply say, well, I just believe that, that is not an answer. And that is, in in a way, an attempt to use what we would call faith as a means to dodge answering a question. Why is it people today within the church, why is it the church itself, why is it pastors, but not limited to pastors alone, why is it the congregations of the body of Christ who gather together will not refuse to or are scared to death to have someone ask them a question or even attempt to answer a question concerning the faith, concerning that very thing. Think about this for a moment. Let's pause, and I I, I don't want to... in no way want to digress, but I do want to make this statement because I believe it's of of tremendous importance here. The faith is the very foundation of our spiritual existence right now, and even it is the foundation of our eternity and our confidence of eternity. And if we claim that we are staking our entire eternity on this faith, and yet we are not prepared to give any answer to that which we are claiming to stake our entire eternity upon, then I would say that is a very foolish position to take when you are not capable or prepared to give any answer because you lack the understanding yourselves concerning this faith. And so Jude is saying contend for the faith, but he's saying we must be personally engaged in the faith, with the faith, in order to do so. And it's interesting that that the word faith being used as an answer rather than explaining, defending, and propagating the faith is so commonplace today. Once again, we live in a day in which the church seems to view mankind as being created by God as emotional beings with intellect rather than intellectual beings with emotion. And I continue to say this recently, and I've said this many times, but there's a reason as to why I say that. This is important in that our salvation is neither based upon our perceived feelings nor is it sourced out from God's emotions as though he possesses emotion when he has no potential, meaning he does not change. Again, there's this theological uh, idea that that referred to as divine simplicity in which it's saying that God has no potency or God has no potential. And what that means is not that God is simple, but meaning there is no changing with God and that there is no potential for God to change. Therefore, he has no potency. 
God is not changing his mind. He's not changing his quote-unquote emotions. And by the way, God does not have emotions. And here's a fallacy, I believe. We know that we are saved because uh, unto God's glory, but we know part of that redemptive work of God in the very manifestation and demonstration of God's love. But here's the problem. God's love is not an emotion. God's love was an intentional, purposeful action, not an emotion. So we speak of God's love, and we almost view that as though that's an emotional side of God, when that is not at all what that is. But rather, it's an intentional, purposeful act of God. And if you don't believe that, look at the cross and what God did in offering and sacrificing his own son on our behalf for our redemption. And so we have to disassociate this idea of salvation equivalent being equivalent to emotion or emotion being equivalent to salvation, not only our perceived feelings have nothing to do with salvation, but neither does some supposed emotion of God have anything to do with salvation. God never acted upon emotion. In fact, I would say God does not possess emotion, so to speak. Again, in Scripture, we, I know, and I can hear the arguments already, people saying, well, the Scripture says that God was angry. Yeah, that's that's God writing and having given us his word in a manner in which, again, it's called anthropomorphism. And, and that means that God has, the term means that, that the, the uh, characteristics of man are being attributed to God so that we have an understanding of what is actually being said about God or, or by God. So in other words, again, uh, in John 4, 4, for instance, just to remind you, Jesus, uh, speaking to the woman at the well, if you recall with me, he said... Uh, to the woman at the well, he said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, John 4, 4. But yet also we find that same spirit, God, is, is referred to as, as having a, an arm that is not short, that it cannot save. Remember that in Isaiah. And, and other attributes that are given, or other characteristics of men that are attributed to God because we cannot understand God, that's the point. The, and I say all that to say this, that God is not an emotional being that acts or responds due to emotions. And again, the very act of God's love has nothing to do with emotion, but it has to do with his intentional, purposeful, determined plan. And so he put this into place. And so again, when we, when we think about, about God creating man, he did not create man an emotional being with intellect. He created men intellectual beings with emotions. And that's important because we are commanded in Scripture over and over again to keep our emotions in check. For instance, be angry and sin not, right? That doesn't say it's wrong to be angry, but we're to be, if we're angry, we're not to sin in anger. And then also we're told that we are to be sober-minded. What does that mean? It means we're not off-hinged off or unhinged because of something we are feeling, but rather we are rooted and grounded and we are sober-minded. In other words, we are, we are temperate. What does that mean? self-controlled. And by the way, someone who's run by their emotions will never be self-controlled. Are you following? So we have emotions, yes, and I'm not denying or denouncing that in any way, shape, or form, but we must recognize that we are made intellectual beings by God, which happen to have been given emotions, not vice versa. And this has become detrimental in the church, because again, this is, the importance is that our salvation is not based upon our perceived feeling nor is it sourced from God's emotions, again, as though he had emotion when there's no potency with God. There's no potential of change 
with Him. So while there are those who would argue that salvation has nothing to do with our intellect, how odd is that? Think about that for a moment, that someone would say, oh, well, salvation has nothing to do with intellect. Well, let me stop you for just a moment. The irony of that is in this, and by the way, this is not a biblical teaching in any way, shape, or form. I'm only saying this for the sake of the argument to help you to understand. What people refer to as, quote, unquote, the age of accountability, which is unbiblical. It's not in Scripture at all. Yet that mentality, what is it basing that age of accountability on? Emotion or what? Intellect. It's basing on one's ability to perceive. Now, isn't that odd that the same people that would often say, oh, intellect it has, salvation has nothing to do with intellect, the intellect at all, but yet they will then say there's this age of accountability which has everything to do with intellect, not emotion. It has to do with the ability to understand. While that's not a biblical teaching at all, the point still being that they're relying upon this truth of intellect nonetheless. Now, when we speak of intellect or intelligence, do not confuse this with wisdom of the world or with man's natural understanding. That's not what we're talking about in terms of salvation. We're talking about God's wisdom being God gifting us with his wisdom and, and bringing us to spiritual discernment and enlightenment and understanding of that which otherwise could never be comprehended by man apart from God's working in his spirit and his presence of his spirit. And we're going to look at this in Scripture uh, because that's important, of course. We must remember, do not forget, that it is by the wisdom of God that Christ died for our redemption. And it is by God granting us spiritual wisdom that we are redeemed. Never once is it referenced to emotion. Not one time. And this is important, 1 Corinthians 1, 19-31. Lengthy passage, but let's read it. For it is written, Paul writes, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring it to nothing, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. So in the wisdom of God, the world could not by its own wisdom attain understanding of God even receive redemption from God. He goes on to say, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, when the scripture says foolishness of preaching, it doesn't say foolish preaching. Do you understand that? It's the foolishness of preaching. In other words, how could one receive eternal life by another declaring the gospel? How does that even make sense? How could you receive an eternity of forgiveness, an eternity of grace, an eternity of the mercy and love of God through through no means of your own, by nothing you are doing, because look at the wisdom of him. What, let, let's compare this for a moment so we don't get ahead of ourselves or we don't lose sight of what Paul is teaching. What does the wisdom of men say concerning salvation? How would we, in the wisdom of men, attain salvation? By the word attain is important when I use that word. How would we attain salvation? By what means? I'm sorry? No, the wisdom of men. What does man say? We, how would man perceive to obtain salvation? Works. By doing good. By following the law. Are you following? This is the wisdom of man. Oh, I'm going to do good. I'm going to be the best I can be. I'm going to stop doing bad things. I'm going to start doing good things. This is the intellect of man. This is the wisdom of man saying, oh, this is what God wants. But God says, no, I destroy all of that, and by the foolishness of preaching, not foolish preaching, the foolishness of preaching, what men would look at in the world and go, well, that makes no sense, because 
it has to do with me being good. And No, it has nothing to do with you being good because you're not good. And so this is the foolishness of the preaching. Now notice what else he goes on to say. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. Here it is. The Greeks seek after wisdom. They want to rationalize and reason everything. And we should be seekers of truth without question. But the point is, they cannot by faith receive this. So they're, they're, they're dumbfounded by this truth of the gospel. Verse 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So Christ is the wit, not the emotion of God. Are you following this? The wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, obviously, God's not weak. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that which the world would perceive to be foolish or weak. In reality, when it's of God, it supersedes all the wisdom and all the strength of men altogether. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Wisdom here, wise is speaking of man's wisdom. He goes on to say, And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are... Look at verse 30 very carefully here. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom. The very first thing mentioned here is that Christ is made unto us wisdom. Not our wisdom, not man's wisdom. What wisdom? God's wisdom. So Christ has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Paul is saying, look, salvation does not come by man's intellect and what man thinks he should do or how he should be. It comes by God imparting Christ, the wisdom of God in Christ to us, that we might believe even that which the world would view to be foolish and not make sense to them because of their ignorance, spiritual ignorance, God has given us spiritual life, spiritual wisdom to believe unto salvation that we might come to life. All this being, being just instantaneous. Faith and regeneration, the new birth, salvation, redemption, if you will, all this is done just in an instant. It's all together. It's not a process. It's God gives us faith. We believe. We're brought to life. All this happens immediately. In, in the new birth, in regeneration, if you will. Besides this, concerning our spiritual growth and understanding of the depths of the riches of this redemption in Jesus Christ, Paul told the church at Ephesus, so now, moving beyond having been saved and born again and God making Christ's wisdom unto us that we might be born again, Paul now in Ephesians is teaching these Ephesian believers concerning the depths of the riches of Christ and this redemption. And listen to what he says in verse 15 of chapter 1 through verse 23. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, Paul's talking to believers. These are already born-again believers at the church at Ephesus. And he's saying that God, my prayer for you continually, is that God would give you the spirit of wisdom. Notice again, no emotion is mentioned. <laughs> 
No wisdom or intellect of man is mentioned, but it's God's wisdom. And that means our understanding. Notice what he says again. He says that, that the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, in the knowledge of him, of Christ, of God. The eyes, verse 18, of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope, what is the confidence of his calling. And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So again here we see. He, he's saying that, that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know. And he, before that, he had said that God given to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So again, we understand that even when it comes to not only being born again, which is the wisdom of God through the foolishness of preaching, the gospel, the power of God demonstrated through his wisdom, not man's, but then also in understanding the depths and truths. And this has to do with the faith. This is what we're dealing with. When we understand the depths and the truths of the knowledge of Christ, understanding this redemption, understanding the foolishness of the world, understanding the wisdom of God as God has given us his spirit of wisdom and discernment. Then, he says, all this comes by God granting us this wisdom that we might know, that we might grow in the knowledge of him. So it's extremely, it, it is extremely interesting to me that there is a, a great move that's been present for, I guess, a, a decade or two maybe now even. But in the, last, in the last 10, 15 years, I guess, it's been pretty predominant within the church language. And that is this idea and this move that we are, are being told that we are to engage the culture. And yet the question remains, I find it to be interesting, how can one engage the culture when he or she has never engaged the faith. Think about what I'm saying to you. Engage the culture all you will, but with what? If, you're not, if you don't have a rooting and grounding in truth and the faith, then what are you engaging them with? And listen, the world has heard, our society has heard for years, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. That's not contending for the faith. This reminds me of the account in the book of 2 Samuel. Look at 2 Samuel 18, 19 through 32. Then said Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, let me now run and bear the king tidings, how that the Lord hath avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said unto him, thou shalt not bear tidings this day, but thou shalt bear tidings another day. But this day thou shalt bear no tidings because the king's son is dead. Then said Joab to Cushai, Go tell the king what thou hast seen. And Cushai bowed himself unto Joab and ran. Then said Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, yet again to Joab. But, house, but howsoever, let me, I pray thee, also run after Cushai. And Joab said, Wherefore wilt thou run, my son, seeing that thou hast no tidings ready? But whosoever, howsoever, said he, let me run. And he said unto him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and overran Cushai. And David sat between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate unto the wall, and lifted up his eyes, and looked, and behold, a man running alone. And the watchman cried and told the king, and the king said, If he be alone, there's tidings in his mouth. And he came apace and drew near. And the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called unto the porter and said, Behold, another man running alone. And the king said, He also bringeth tidings. 
And the watchman said, Me thinketh the running of the foremost is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And, and the king said, He is a good man and cometh with good tidings. And Ahimeaz called and said unto the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. And the king said unto him, Turn aside and stand here. And turned aside and stood still. He turned aside and stood still. And behold, Cushai came, and Cushai said, Tidings, my lord, the king, for the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. And the king said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies of the Lord, of my lord, the king, and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. Now here's what's happened here. While Ahimeaz was more than willing to run to the king, David, he did not know the message which Joab was sending to David by way of Cushai. Nonetheless, Ahimeaz wanted to run. And so he did. He wanted to run so badly that he overtook Cushai and arrived to King David before Cushai did. However, when the king asked if Absalom was alive, because understand, David's concern in this matter is Absalom. And David's saying, is Absalom alive? And this is the only message in which David was interested at all. Ahimeaz had no answer to give David. This is where many today who desire to stand up for the faith find themselves, I'm afraid. They are willing to fight by their own profession, yet they fail to possess an understanding of the message for which they are to fight. Oh, we'll contend for the faith, but we have no understanding of what we're contending for. And so when asked a question, is Absalom alive? I don't know. How am I supposed to answer that? I saw something going on over here. I know the Bible says something about that, but... I don't know what answer. And that does not mean we have all the answers. What it means is that we should not be so earnest to run until we have engaged first the faith. So engage the faith, engage the culture. But don't engage the culture without having engaged the faith. And this has caused great detriment today, not only on the outside, but as well within the church. It, it's caused tremendous demise uh, among those who would attend and those who would be present when people jump to the defense of the faith and yet are unable to provide any clear and definitive answers, not only are those who are asking the questions left without answer, but the ones acting as though they are prepared to defend the faith demonstrate their ignorance, and what's more is they misrepresent the faith as though the faith is indefensible. Hear me, the faith is clearly defensible. And you cannot convince someone of truth, but you should be able to declare the truth in such a, in such a thought-provoking manner that that person cannot just dismiss it in their own minds and their own intellect as being someone who's just deceived and someone who's just been misled and indoctrinated with this religious nonsense. And by the way, I will say to you, much of what is propagated today is nothing more than religious nonsense. You understand that, don't you? That's true. Much of what is propagated today and many answers that are given are nothing more than religious nonsense. So from the onset of our examination of this third verse, which once again includes the thesis statement of this epistle, we begin to understand the importance of not only understanding the exhortation, but what's more, the importance of committing our lives to living in and living out this exhortation to contend for the faith. The faith has never been that which one can casually approach, casually believe, 
or casually engage. Such attempts to approach or engage the faith casually are rejected by the Lord Jesus himself. In Luke 9, 57 through 62, we read, And it came to pass then that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds have the, of the air have nests, but the man, Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, Christ gave his all, and he demands our all. This is much more than a superficial claim to desire to live like Jesus. Do you understand? That's what's happening here. Here you have these people going, Jesus says, follow me. Okay, I'll follow you, Lord, on this condition. With this contingency, I will follow you as long as I still get to go bid my family farewell. I will follow you as long as I can go take care of burying my father first. I will follow you as long as you provide me with what I believe is necessary for my life to live it the way that I'm living it right now. Do you see? That's what Jesus is contending with here. And so this is this approach of this superficial claim to desire to live like Jesus, but to do so requires a life committed to knowing Jesus. The Scriptures further teach us if we are truly followers of Christ, if we, if we genuinely engage the faith, it will cost us everything. In Mark 8, 34 and 35, And when he had called the people unto him, and with his disciples also, he said unto them, Jesus, of course, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Luke 14, 26-33. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage to and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Here's the point Jesus is making. Salvation is absolutely free to you. Salvation was totally paid for by Christ, by the Father, and sacrificing, offering his son as atonement. But Jesus is making it very clear, without any exceptions, that to follow Jesus costs you everything. Everything. Not meaning that you will lose everything in the sense of everything will be stripped from you necessarily. It could be. But rather that you must lay aside all things to follow after him. So here's the point. To be engaged in the faith, because this is the faith. This is the gospel. This is knowing Christ. This is following after him. So to be engaged in the faith is something that is extremely costly. And it's costly of many things. We must first say, Lord, all is yours. I am yours, therefore all I have is yours because all that I have is given to me of you as to become a steward of this. Second, it is a requirement of a sacrificing great time and devotion and dedication, understanding that to know Christ and to know the faith, to be engaged in the faith is not something that is going to be sufficiently uh, supplied on just Wednesday night and Sunday morning or what have you. It's funny, isn't it? 
again, the mentality intellect of man is, oh, I'll engage the world, I'll go to church, so I can answer questions, and yet have no understanding of what the faith is at all, and not able to answer questions that are sincere questions. And by the way, let me say to you that there are questions that are asked that are deep, thoughtful, true inquiries by people that are intellectual and want to know truth, meaning not they're coming to Christ necessarily at this point, not the Lord's even brought them to understand any spiritual truth, but yet they want answers. They're trying to understand the very purpose of life and the meaning of this existence that is lived. And whenever people just say, oh, so you can go to heaven, that's not an answer. And so that's what, that's what we need to understand. And so to contend for the faith, we must first engage the faith. And to follow Christ, to engage the faith, is not something which can ever be done casually or half-heartedly. Engaging the faith in one's life is to completely submit oneself to the Lord Jesus Christ. I was recently listening to uh, Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian clinical psychologist and former professor at the University of Toronto who once embraced or at least leaned heavily toward atheism. And, and he made the following statement, which I'm going to paraphrase for you, not exactly. But Peterson stated that he attempts to live, and he says this with tears. He, he is humble in these moments. He, he's an older man now. I guess probably he's 60 or so, maybe a little bit older. And so he's not a young man, but yet he, he's, a, he's definitely intelligent, extremely intelligent, intellectual, and academic. And yet he is at a point in his life where all his pursuit of truth and knowledge has brought him to this conclusion. Peterson stated that he attempts to live life as though he does believe in God and that God exists, yet finds it perplexing that so many people so quickly and casually profess to believe in God and yet live their lives in total contradiction to such professed belief. This man does not go to church. This man is not quote-unquote religious, and yet he tearfully, I watched again another one of his, his vlogs, and he tearfully spoke to the church even though he's not a part of the church, he said, and it may seem presumptuous for me to even speak to the church, but he's pleading with the churches to, to seek truth and to engage the world with the truth. He even goes as far as to say, quit engaging in, in, in these societal demands of equality and all of this. He says, start caring for souls, which is your holy purpose. It's just interesting, isn't it? That comes from an unbelieving man. In the sense of not one who's professed Christ, but yet says, I, I attempt to live my life as though I believe that God is. And he says, I'm fearful that God is. I'm fearful that he, that he is and that he exists. He says, and I attempt to live my life in such a manner. However, I, I'm perplexed that so many people casually just say, I believe in God. And yet their lives have no reflection of that whatsoever. No commitment, no understanding of what they even claim. It's reported that D.L. Moody made a very similar statement when referring to a conversation between himself and a British revivalist by the name of Henry Varley. Moody is credited with the following statement. You've heard this before, I'm sure. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Then it's reported that, uh, uh, that Moody said, by God's help, I aim to be that man. Yet if truth be told, that has been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, contrary to both Peterson and Moody, because Peterson goes on to say as well that, that he goes, only, only God knows what it would look like for someone who professes belief in God to truly live out that belief. He said, who knows what that would look like? 
But contrary to both Peterson and Moody, the world knows exactly what that would look like. For one to live in absolute belief and commitment to such belief in God and submission to God. It would look exactly like the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's exactly what he did. Nonetheless, while Peterson is not a professing believer, it is interesting to observe his obvious anguish and conviction when speaking of such matters. As a matter of fact, I would dare say to you, as an unbelieving man, Peterson does much, a much greater and a much, a much more efficient job at being an apologist than those who sit in churches claiming to stand in the faith and defend the faith. And yet he does not even claim to know Christ of this faith. It is very well, or it very well may be, that the Lord is working in Peterson's life to bring him to truth as he apparently is consumed by the pursuit of truth and meaning of life. Or it could be that Peterson will be his Pilate and will continue to be consumed by the question, what is truth, as was Pilate. However, regardless as to whether Peterson will ever come to saving faith in Jesus Christ or not, it is interesting to me how he can possess such an accurate perspective of the Christian faith, while so many who do profess belief in Christ do so in such a casual and passive manner, possessing no evidence of such a claim being manifested within the manner in which they live their lives. Peterson, who is obviously an academic and intellectual, sees through the modern-day ideology which has overtaken American churches by storm. The professing and visible church today, by large, has failed to seek and understand the faith which they claim to love and has increasingly become satisfied in their growing ignorance. And I personally am somewhat befuddled by that. How can it be that we claim that we love the Lord and we love the faith and we stand in God's Word and yet it's not about whether or not we can quote a verse or reference a verse if you don't even understand the teaching of the Scriptures and the foundational truths in a manner in which you can earnestly contend for the faith. The church concerning the matter of engaging the faith has become passive at best and lazy and uncaring at worst. This is a tragedy that results, listen to what it results in. You need, to, you need to pay close attention to this, please. It results in the older generation being put to pasture while the younger generation is being fed to the wolves. When the faith is not personally engaged by believers then it will inevitably result in the aging saint becoming considerably irrelevant. I mean, because once somebody gets a certain age, what good or profit could they possibly be to the church? You know, we talk about how, what a tragedy that is in society, do we not? When someone reaches the age as though society now views them as, no matter what they've done all their lives, no matter how productive they've been, no matter how beneficial or influential they've been, all of a sudden they come to a certain age and now they're irrelevant. I mean, they really, you know, why are we allowing them to continue on like this and just take up resources, right? That mentality, which is wicked, having no value placed upon life and understanding of appreciation of what God has done 
through this person or what have you, but how much more so tragic that within, is that within the church whenever we would view an elderly saint as though there's no benefit there? But here's the problem. When the church is not engaged in the faith, then that will become the mindset because they're no longer relevant to the young people coming in which are attempting to be entertained in order to keep the church going. Or what's more, the young people are then just fed to the wolves because the faith is not engaged. So they're just given over to the mindset mentality of the world. So while those who are genuinely curious concerning the faith are left to seek answers by a world which abides in spiritual darkness and has diligently applied themselves to answer such curiosity convincingly with well-constructed theories and lies which are carefully crafted to appeal to the intellect of those who are consumed with seeking out truth or the meaning of life. And they're given over to the world to figure these things out or to have the answers provided. It is imperative. Jude said it was needful. I wanted to write to you about the depths and riches, just glorying in the beauty of this redemption we all share together in Christ. He says, but it's urgent. It is needful that I write to you concerning your responsibility and the seriousness to contend for the faith. And earnestly implies that you personally, diligently do so. And it is imperative that the church return to a life dedicated in intellectually engaging the faith according to the wisdom and spiritual discernment that God has granted us. Not that you in your own wisdom attempt to figure things out. No, that you rely on the Spirit of God and you commit yourselves to the study of the Scriptures and the study of truth and make sure that you are consuming yourself with the teaching of the truth, whether it be in the church service in which you attend or whether it be even outside as you would listen to others who would teach the truth of God's Word and the truth of the faith. Long gone, and I think it's quite evident, long gone are the days in which the attempts to dismiss deep and thought-provoking questions in a shallow manner, long gone are those days to suffice. We must be prepared by engaging the faith personally and seriously so that we might then engage our culture with the truth of the faith. Earnestly, that's really as far as we've gotten. I hope you understand that. Earnestly, personally engaging the faith. All this talk, listen, again, all this talk, it's, here's what it's like. And we are in a war, there's no doubt about that, spiritually speaking, we know that. And, and what we've done is, we're sending out, supposing those who are supposed to be warriors... Soldiers of the cross, those who are, are servants of Christ professing to be, we are sending the church out in flip-flops and Bermuda shorts. And I'm not against Bermuda shorts. I'm making a point here. And T-shirts and sunglasses saying, hey, go engage the culture No, this is a war. This is a vacation. And there's no preparation. And there's no understanding. And it's like sending men out to fight with vacation garb and vacation tools or vacation accessories when they're fighting an enemy that is already equipped 
intellectually and prepared intellectually and empowered spiritually, not by God, but by the God of this world to fight this battle. Listen, the church can no longer afford to view itself as though it's on vacation. Do you understand that? We must be engaged in the faith, and that takes work, and that takes commitment, and that takes uh, devotion, and that takes diligence. By the way, when Paul said, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When Paul gave Timothy that charge, the word study there does not mean sit down with a pen and paper. It means be diligent, to be diligent in the truth, that you might understand the truth. Not that you feel better about the truth. No, that you might understand the truth and be able to engage the culture with the truth. Look, I'm not beating you up tonight. I'm expressing to you the truth of what Jude is saying and trying to convey to you the seriousness of the matter that's at hand. And the fact of the matter is we are responsible before God, called by God. We are to be stewards of the gospel. We are to be stewards of the truth. We are to be stewards of the faith. We are to contend for the faith. We are to earnestly contend. We are to personally engage in the faith. And so I say to you, and I'm speaking in general terms to the church at at large, in, in American society, shame on the church. Shame on the church for not seeing this seriously. Shame on us for not engaging the faith. Shame on us for wanting to engage in a culture without a message. Or with some made-up message, or some compilation of topical sermons that we've gathered along the years and we attempt to answer serious intellectual questions of people who are pursuing to know truth just by the questions they ask. This is a serious matter. And Jude is bringing it to the forefront. Again, oh, Jude says, I'd love to preach to you about this common salvation. I'd love to write to you about this, but it is urgent. It is needful, it is necessary that I write to you about this because this is a great danger. And again, here's what I would say to you. When we engage the faith, how old you are has no relevance. It's not the age become irrelevant, it's your age is irrelevant because you are just as much so an ambassador and messenger of Christ as any young person has or ever will be. Do you understand that? But if we're not engaging the faith, then yeah, we get to the point to where age becomes relevant. Or because we're old, we become irrelevant. Or we think that, or the church thinks that, because they're not engaged in the faith. Listen, I don't want to sit under someone just because they're 90 years old. I want to sit under someone who's 90 years old, who's been engaged in the faith, who has answers to questions, who's fault with Christ, who knows Christ, who knows truth of Scripture, who can feed others. I will sit under that person all day long, regardless of their age, or even because of that age, as they've engaged the faith. But here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to sit under anyone, no matter how old they are, if they're not engaged in the faith. What difference does that make? Your age does not give you wisdom. God gives wisdom. And His Word is wisdom. Christ is Are you understanding this? And if you are in Christ and you're engaged in the faith and the knowledge and pursuit of Christ and truth, then you will have wisdom not because your hair is gray, but because you know Christ. And you know it's truth. Earnestly. And by the way, there's not anyone too old to begin to earnestly 
personally engage in the faith? Why would we not want to do that now? So earnestly, earnestly, personally, seriously, urgently, understand the situation. Life is short. We've been given a certain amount of days, and we don't know how long those days will be. But with those days is a purpose. And as believers, you know that purpose. So engage in that purpose. Engage in the faith.